Okay, so when I was a teenager, I moved to Japan, right? It was a fairly small town by Japanese standards. Moved into a little apartment, and the first day, I went to a grocery store. And you know, I was wandering around this store, no idea what the stuff was, but I had to eat something. So I started throwing packages in my cart. And this group of older ladies, they kind of followed me around the store, laughing and pointing. But I just had to do the best I could. And I grabbed a box of crackers, and one of the ladies started shouting, my mom, my mom, my mom. I'm like, all right, all right. Everything's cool, crazy lady. My mom, my mom. And she wouldn't stop. My mom. So I checked out. I escaped the grocery store with my packages, went back to my apartment, and I'm busy putting stuff away. And there's a knock on the door. Someone's saying, Jamashimas. And it's that crazy lady from the store. And she darts past me into my kitchen and starts in again. My mom, my mom. And she grabs my box of crackers and she points at the package and there's a picture of a cute little doggy. My mom. And I get it. You know, she likes dogs. My mom. No, 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 no. She doesn't like dogs. Those crackers, they're for a dog. <laughs> I had just bought dog food and she's trying to stop me before it's too late. Ah, my mom. Got you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And she leaves. But the next day, she comes back again. And this time, she's got a translation book. And she points and she says, I must learn the soul. I'm like, the soul of what? And she tells me, Japan. Where's that? The soul of Japan is in the tea. And she takes me to her house, her beautiful home. And I know to take my shoes off. She sits me down on a tatami mat and brings out a tea set. And with motions and sign language, she starts to teach. First, the leaves, and the water, and the pour, and the cup, and the language, and this rhythm and power and ritual, and the turn, the smell, the bow, and the stir. And finally, the sip. And I start to learn. And every week she teaches the leaves, and the water, and the pour, and the cup, and the language. This window into her world, and I try to respect it. I formally acknowledge the tradition she's taught me. I try to say the words perfectly. I sit bent into the proper position until my legs scream, and even then I stay seated through gritted teeth. She teaches me Japanese calligraphy and flower arranging, says the soul of Japan is in each of these arts as well. And the day comes for me to return to Michigan. And she's in front of my apartment when the taxi arrives and she bows her goodbye. And I bow back at her deeper. And she bows again deeper still. But she has been my teacher. And I love this little lady. And I will not lose this. And I bow down all the way. And I win. And now, I've been as Japanese as I could be. I have learned and appreciate it, but I'm not Japanese. I'm from the Midwest, so I tell her, unfortunately, Gomen Nasai, I've got to give her a great big American hug now. I have to do that. And she looks horrified and says, I cannot. But I run toward her and she runs away. But I'm bigger and faster and I catch this older lady and I give her the biggest hug I can. And she screams and screams and laughs and I cry and I tell her I'm going to miss her terribly. And I do. And I tell her I will never drink coffee. I will always drink tea. And I do. And I was thinking about her the other day, this woman who treated me like her own child. And I recalled how lucky I've been to have these mother figures in my life. Women who jumped in to fill this role, even when the relationship with my own natural mother has been strained. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we're going to talk about your mama. Because you're a mama's boy, mama's boy. We're calling this one Dear Mama. Stories about that special person you call moms. My name is Glenn Washington, and this 
is Snap Judgment. Did you ever wonder what's happening with what's happening? I'm always wondering what's happening with what's happening. And that's why I'm so excited today. You'll never guess the special person we have for you, none other than Raj. Not rerun, rest in peace, but Raj, Mr. Ernest L. Thomas from my favorite childhood show, What's Happening. He's got a special story about his mother. Oh my God, my mother, she is through and through a Baptist Christian. That is the main thing to describe her. Going to church was the number one thing that got her approval. Uh, And I went to church a lot. I did try to seek my mother's approval. I mean, to the point where my mother actually told me, you know, basically to back off. (laughs) <laughs> I remember this so specifically in the kitchen in Dory Miller Project saying, Mom, do you know how much I love you? Oh, I love you. You're the greatest mom. But she says, get away from me, boy. You know, <laughs> She always told me about graduating from college. That was a big thing because no one in our family ever had graduated from college. I graduated from Indiana State University. But the irony of it is all these years since I was a little boy, as long as I can remember, you're gonna go to college. You're gonna, you have greatness in you. You're the one. I graduate and I am alone (laughs) at graduation with cap and gown, okay? Nobody came, nobody came. I got a great job at Midwest Steel Mill, the first black in that position. So everyone was like so happy I had that job and I could not shake this desire to be on stage, to act. And I was stressed out because I knew at some point that I had to reveal to my mother that I'm going to acting school, which she could not understand at all. And she thought it was the devil's work. And she was going to pray that that hex be removed. Oh, my God. It was very, very hard for me not to get the approval of my mother for the acting situation. I mean, many, many nights of tears. I did Broadway, I got great reviews. I thought that would be something that my mother would know that I have achieved something great. I call mom all excited. Mom, I'm on Broadway. Broadway and what, sugar? I come and pick you up. No, no, mom, mom, Broadway is like, it's like a stage and, and, and see, it's like a big stars. That, no clue, no clue whatsoever. It took me about four years before I got what's happening. I was Raj. What was your name again? Uh, Roger Thomas. My card. I really knew that what's happening was a hit when I walked down the street and people recognized me from the show. They identify, you know, they love you. They uh, some cry, literally cry when they see you. They'd be from Compton or South Central or. I could be in Chicago. People would say, you know, we were on welfare or my daddy was abusive. But the one thing they could all get joy out of was watching what's happening, you know. Everywhere we would go, people said, I'm so proud of your son. Do you know how popular your son is? Do you know how much I love your son? My mother, this was too much for her because to her, only Jesus would be getting that type of adulation. They had Ernest Thomas Day in Gary, Indiana, where I was born and raised. They had actually a parade. The crowd went nuts, you know. They just went crazy. People storming the stage and police were trying to keep them back and the mayor was begging them to back up. They would not do it. You know, it was overwhelming for me. 
My mother, I think she felt that Jesus deserves it. <laughs> but my mother didn't care for television one way or the other. 35 years later, they're still coming. LaToya Smith was a young lady, 19 years old. She was waiting for um, a heart transplant. I met her uncle in passing on the street and he was a fan and he asked me would I go and see her because she was really depressed. So I went to that hospital. I'm trying to think what can I do to get this young girl out of her depression. They said she was a fan of the show. I decided to put on the original Rod glasses, which I never do. And I walked in that hospital room, and I'm telling you, when she saw those glasses, you saw when the light coming from her face, her eyes, her smile. Doctors are smiling. Her grandparents, her mother and father are all happy. And she's reaching for my glasses, which I give her. And she puts on my glasses. They took a Polaroid picture of that, which I have on my wall right now. My mother, at that time, she was living with me. So when I came back from Houston, I brought her the Polaroid. That really got her. And that's when I, my mother knew that, wow, you're doing good. There's got to be godliness in that. And she says, Mama, Mama is so happy. You know, Mama is so happy. God will bless you, baby. She still doesn't say, well, oh, the show is really great, but I'm translating that. That's how she's saying that. You're doing a good job. I'm glad that you, you, you got into the acting without saying exactly those words. Now, Raj, I mean, Mr. Thomas just put out a book all about his mama. Check it out on our website, snapjudgment.org. And amazingly, with no crying babies, no death penalties, that story was still produced by our own Anna Sussman. But don't worry. Anna Sussman tugs the heartstrings in the way you have come to expect in just a moment when Snap Judgment, the Dear Mama episode, continues. When I was young, me and my mama had beef, 17 years old, kicked out on the streets. Though back at the time, I never thought I'd see a face. Ain't a woman alive that could take my mama's place. Suspended from school, I'm scared to go home. I was a fool with the big boys breaking all the rules. Shed tears with my baby sister Over the years we was poor than other little kids And even though we had different daddies The same drama when things went wrong we blamed mama I reminisce on the stress I caused It was hell Hugging on my mama from a jail cell And who thinking elementary? Hey, I see the penitentiary One day, running from the police That's right Mama catch me, put a whoop into my backside You always was committed A poor single mother on welfare Tell me how you did it There's no way I can pay you back But the plan is to show you that I understand to Snap Judgment, the Dear Mama episode. So, I have a very dear friend, and the doctors told his mother that she didn't have very much time to live. And I went to see her, and she smiled, 
and she said she was gonna fix me up something special to eat. She said, I know how you enjoy my curry. I'm gonna make you the best curry you ever had. But when I saw her turn toward the kitchen, I could see how the pain racked her frame. And I stood up, I'll be damned, no way, no way was this lady, this wonderful lady cooking for me in this condition. I'm cooking for her and her son. My friend kicked me under the table hard and he whispered to me, dude, she loves you. She wants to show you love while she still can. And you're gonna sit there and you're gonna let her do it. So I sat and held my tongue watching as his mother struggled around the kitchen, stopping stock still sometimes, just for a moment to catch her breath. Then she'd wave it away, laugh, add a touch of cinnamon to the curry, throw balls of dough into the hot ghee, and then she brought the feast. Curried lamb, warm naan bread, mango chutney, coconut rice. She stood behind me as I ate it, and I knew exactly what love tastes like. See, mother love takes many forms. Our next story is from South Africa, and it dives into this well of a mother's love from a very different perspective. It all begins with a tradition, a tradition no person should ever see pass from mother to child. There used to be a holiday in South Africa called the Day of the Vow. The vow was taken in the 1800s, during the war between the white boars and the black Zulus. And the story goes like this. It was the eve of a bloody battle for control over South Africa. And black fighters outnumbered the whites something like 25 to 1. So the besieged whites took a public vow. If God helped them to win, then they would celebrate their victory over the Zulus on that day for generations to come. So generations later, after whites took control of the land and put a system of apartheid in place, every December 16th, whites around South Africa would teach their children to celebrate their victory over the Zulus, often with violence. Letlapa Mpelele remembers the day as a young boy living in the countryside. And I remember on the 16th of every December, white people on motorbikes used to descend on the village and they would beat up every uh, African people they came across. And we knew that on that day we had to uh, lock our doors and stay indoors because we were going to be beaten up. So as Letlapa grew into a young man, he and black students across the country, they decided to take December 16th for themselves. This day would be the beginning of their armed revolt against apartheid. Young Letlapa took up arms and soon he became the director of operations for a violent freedom movement. I felt that I wanted to lay down my life for the freedom, so. So, if blacks were gunned down by white soldiers, black freedom fighters would fight back and murder white policemen. Violence cascaded into more violence. On a warm October night, white soldiers killed five black South African children as they lay sleeping in their home. So Letlapa fought back, and he ordered an attack on innocent white civilians at a tavern in Cape Town. I felt that it was time for tit for tat, and uh, I ordered the attack. Four people were killed, and among them was a young student Lindy Faree was her name. Lindy Faree was 23 years old, and she was having a drink with friends when she was murdered on Letlapa's orders. She was the only daughter of Jin Faree. I'm Jin Faree, and I'm Lindy's mother. We'd been out for the day, and when we got home at 4 o'clock, there was a message from the police on our answering machine saying um, our daughter had been killed at the Heidelberg and we needed to come and identify her body. Let me just gather my thoughts. They had actually killed a person who was on their side and could have been their greatest friend. Well, at the time, I felt it was a successful operation. It was splashed all over TV screens. People come out uh, weeping screaming, crying, praying. 
no human being can kill without you know part of his or her humanity being affected choosing the path of war was the last resort remember a month earlier we had buried children who were younger so what letlapa saw as a kind of historical necessity jin only saw as brutal and heartless I don't know if you've seen the prayer that I prayed at her funeral. Uh, the words are, Mary, Mother of God, our children died at the hands of evil men. He was, in my view, still the devil incarnate. He made a statement that now the whites are going to suffer the way blacks have suffered during apartheid, and he's not going to spare any compassion. I, Nelson Hodesasa Mandela, do hereby say. Six months later, Nelson Mandela was elected president and ended apartheid in South Africa. So help me go. And December 16th was renamed the Day of Reconciliation. Now, a country of people that had been killing each other for generations had to face each other and say sorry. So, as part of that healing, on the next December 16th, people who had committed terrible violence under apartheid came to stand before a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and ask for forgiveness. But Letlapa wouldn't go. He thought he was being made a criminal for fighting for what was right. And they said, I have to disclose all my, my crimes. Then I felt that uh, I was not a criminal, and that was tantamount to criminalizing the liberation struggle. But Jin was heartbroken by his refusal to participate in this reconciliation process. So she decided she was going to personally confront him at a press conference. I uh, stood up and identified myself as Lindy's mother and asked him if he hadn't trivialized the truth and reconciliation by not being there, appearing. Jin was shaking and irate. And then Letlapa explained his belief that his men were being punished for fighting for freedom. He explained his history. And the loss of Jin's daughter was suddenly cast in the light of generations of loss. So that rather pulled the carpet out under my feet. There was nothing more to say. I hadn't seen things from that perspective. He came up to me and shook hands in a traditional African way of deep respect, where you hold your right wrist with your left hand and, and bow. It is not forgiveness that I was seeking from her. What I was mostly intending to do was to appeal to her to understand, not necessarily to forgive. But Jin forgave him anyway. It didn't really concern me whether he'd accept it or not. I just needed to give him the message. So she went on to say, in spite of uh, what uh, you have done to me, depriving me of my only daughter, Lindy, uh, I, I forgive you. Still, Letlapa never said he was sorry, because it wasn't enough. In my culture, they say, Saying I'm sorry doesn't heal. It is your action more than what you say that really matters. So he invited Jin to his official homecoming ceremony. See, Letlapa had not been home as a free man since 1978. By inviting me to his homecoming ceremony and asking me to speak, he was taking a huge risk. But that went very well because I apologized on behalf of my ancestors for what had happened in South Africa. She got the loudest applause, but not only that, she was renamed. I was given the name Peladi, means mother of Africa. And if you become mother of Africa, you become mother of nearly a billion people. My fear has been that Lindy will be forgotten. But of course, Lindy is never going to be forgotten. Everybody everywhere feel that 
after losing one daughter, there are many more daughters that she's mother to. Find a link to the Lindy Foree Foundation on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman. Now, Carolyn and Sean Savage, they had three beautiful children, but they wanted one more. And like thousands of Americans, they had some difficulties with pregnancy. So they decided to seek the services of an in vitro fertilization clinic, and they crossed their fingers. We thought, we're going to go for it, and however it turns out, we'll be okay with that. If it works, great. We'll have four kids. Perfect. If it doesn't work, we're fine with our family the way it is. We went in for that frozen embryo transfer, and we transferred three embryos. Ten days after the frozen embryo transfer, I was scheduled to go and have a blood draw for a pregnancy test. And I waited that day for a phone call confirming. Now, I have to tell you, I knew in my heart I already was. I had all of the symptoms. I just knew it had worked. I, I knew it. I'm already thinking of names. How am I going to set up our house? So when the call did not come, one o'clock passed, two o'clock passed, three o'clock passed, no call. I figured they'd call for sure by the end of the day, so that's why when my husband, Sean, kind of barreled through our door at about four o'clock that afternoon, I was stunned. He said that the doctor had informed him that indeed I was pregnant, but that there had been a mistake, and that they had thawed and transferred the embryos of another couple. So I was indeed pregnant with somebody else's genetic child. I was shocked. I think when anyone undergoes some sort of a fertility treatment, you expect one of two things to happen. Either it's going to work and you're pregnant, or it didn't work and you're disappointed. The idea that you could be pregnant with somebody else's child never even entered into the realm of possibility for me. The doctor explained that um, he needed to know what our intentions were. Very quickly, within moments, of learning of the situation, we we knew what we had to do. That was care for this child during the pregnancy, do our best we could to protect him or her, and then deliver him or her back to his genetic parents um, upon delivery, because that's what we would have wanted someone to do for us. I immediately thought, okay, people do this, right? I'm now a surrogate. But what I think is important for people to understand is that that has to be a decision-making process that is well thought out. That didn't happen for us. The enormity of what we were undertaking, it was very, very scary. Pregnancy is not an easy thing. There are moments that you think, I can't believe that I'm just you know, standing up and going on but I'm gonna get a baby in the end and, and I'm gonna get to be a mother. We weren't gonna get that. We had to explain why I was gonna have a baby and why I wasn't gonna come home from the hospital with a baby. I remember one time I was in the grocery store and um, one of the cashiers said to me, you know, is it a boy or a girl? It's a boy. She's like, oh, and I, and I would just sit there and smile, and I'd just be dying on the inside. And I think the lowest point of the pregnancy was a particular evening where I was quite ill, and I just sat in my bathroom and sobbed. I just didn't know how I was going to be able to let this child go. The hospital was tricky. We tried to control it as best as we could, but I also didn't know once they took him from the delivery room if we were going to be seeing him again because his genetic parents never made that promise. I wanted him to know someday that the moment he took his first breath, that the people that were standing in that room were 
thrilled that he was there and that he was not a burden. He was a gift. He was in the delivery room with me for about 20 minutes when they rolled him from the room. And I remember the door shutting. I remember closing my eyes and thinking, it's okay, it's gonna be okay. At the end of this, everything was gonna work out and be just fine. The year after he was born was probably more difficult than the pregnancy. And that I had not planned for, and so that was tough. And I had to work through that. And um, every time I get an email update or a picture or we get an opportunity to see him, we're reassured that we did the right thing. After Logan was born, my husband, Sean, and I made a decision to have another child. We learned kind of early on in, in my pregnancy with Logan that he would be my last pregnancy um, due to the number of C-sections and just my physical condition. And of course, we had the embryos that we were originally trying to use in the first place. So we knew we had to seek the services of a surrogate, which is the ultimate irony in our situation. <laughs> How often do you find a surrogate looking for a surrogate? I mean, that just doesn't even make any sense. So this past August, our wonderful surrogate delivered 37-week twins to us. We were in the delivery room. It was truly probably the most joyous moment of our lives. It would be foolish for me to claim that I don't think that there's a little bit of karma involved in this. I look at them and I think I wouldn't have them if what happened hadn't happened. You know it. Carolyn and Sean, they wrote a book about their ordeal. Check it out at snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman. You're listening right now to Snap Judgment, the Dear Mama episode. And when we return, we're going to find out which can go faster, a tornado or a station wagon full of squalling kids. My money's on the tornado. When Snap Judgment, the Dear Mama episode, continues. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and today on the program, we're exploring the special bond between mother and child. Some families, they have this bond tested in unimaginable ways. And our next story, it's a real story. It's about as real as it gets. And it touches on a subject that is far too common. This story is raw, and please know that it may not be suitable for young children or sensitive listeners Get them kids some Legos. They can come back in about five minutes. I'm nine years old, and we don't eat meat, my mom and me, because we're vegetarians. But since my stepfather, Leopoldo, entered our world, we have meat in the house. Steaks in the refrigerator. We buy them every week now, whether my mom needs them or not. I know now how meat feels, but not how it tastes. Cold, thick, rubbery. It's funny how raw meat heals raw meat. The cold steak reduces the swelling on my mom's cheekbone. Cold steak on the puffy protrusion that threatens to swallow her right eye, blackened for looking at other men. 
Cold steak on her lips cracked for talking back. Her face is a disaster. But the cool, moist flesh draws down the pain, the discoloration, the swelling. It's funny how this dead flesh gives life yet. I want to heal this face, ravaged by another, angrier face. My stepfather's face, now sitting silently across the room, open with remorse. Even when he's sorry, Leopoldo scares me. His body is always tightly coiled, ready to strike out. He's sinewy and strong. Scars fleck his moody surface, here from a knife, there from broken glass. One of his impossibly rounded biceps has a jagged dark bullet scar. At night, my mom holds me tight and sways with me. Her face is clear and bright, framed by dark curls. She tucks me tight and kisses me on the forehead, rises and turns off the light. And then she closes the door, and I'm alone. And she's not alone. There's a man out there waiting for her. This man nourishing his demons with green bottles of malt liquor. He yells at her, accuses her, threatens her. And then as often as not, he begins hitting her, really beating on her. She screams in her defense or pleads with him to stop or promises to do or not do whatever it is. And dishes break and things are thrown and knocked over. Impacts to walls and floors make booms and crashing sounds. I'm casting about in my room in a panic, grabbing at one thing and then another, searching for some object, some strategy I can use. Clutching first a book and then a trophy and then a toy bat. Why don't I ever remember to hide a kitchen knife in here? What would a man do? I'm her son, her only son. I'm leaving my mom to die. I always do the same thing. I calm down. It is important to calm down. I climb back into bed and hunker down beneath blankets and pillows. I muffle the sounds of my mother's destruction. I used to cry myself to sleep, but now the sounds are too routine to bring tears. I suppress the churning in my belly and the lump in my throat. As mom taught me, he doesn't hit me, but he bosses me around, mocks me, threatens me. I'm 12 years old when I think I finally have it in me to kill him. Get out, I say. You're nothing without us. You're nothing. He doesn't even look upset. My time has come. He just casually punches me in the mouth. I fly backwards, crashing into the couch, but I bounce right back up. My upper lip, bloody and numb, I'm screaming at him. Get out! Get out! And magically, he does get out. And in that moment, my mother finds her way back into sanity. It was somehow okay for him to beat the hell out of her, but not me, not her boy. So we pack fast and we run. That summer we hide out in John and Susan's basement. I see John peer out protectively when we hear cars coming up the driveway. But Leopoldo doesn't find us that summer. And then we move up farther north to the woods in Skagit County. I'm 13 years old and I'm strong. And now I hope he does find us. I wait for the day. I eventually pray for the day that he finds us. At the barter fair in Okanagan, I converted my little life savings into a semi-automatic M14 rifle with a 10-round clip. And I've got knives everywhere, in my bed, my boot, my backpack, my book bag. But he never does find us. He never finds me waiting for him. I'm 27 years old. I'm an attorney with a new client in a maximum security prison for women. We're going down the list of questions, and I ask her what her batterer would typically do when he was done whipping her. And she tells me that he would gently tend to her wounds with witch hazel, doctoring the red welts on her brown skin. He kept steaks in the fridge to heal her. The meat, she said, brought down the swelling. I stop writing, and we both look into the distance past the bars on the window. And she says, Isn't it funny how raw meat heals raw meat? And I agree that it is funny. She starts thanking me again for taking her case. I was a stranger to you, she says. You didn't even know me, and yet here you are. Here I am, I say. I feel like I've known you for a long time. After a silence, she says, All I ever wanted was for him to leave me alone. That's all I wanted. But he came after us. He found us. You have to believe me. I didn't want him dead. I didn't want him dead. I believe her. I believe that, unlike me, 
this convicted killer never wanted her battered or dead. And there, in the prison, I'm finally thankful that he never did find me, waiting for him. Joshua Safran's struggle to free a battered woman from prison is the subject of Crime After Crime, the award-winning film that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and was an audience favorite on the Oprah Winfrey Network. His memoir, Surviving Utopia, about his childhood on the run, will be published next year. We'll have a link to his world on our site, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Stephanie Fu. Now, what about the invisible mothers? The ones we can't see, the ones behind bars? Well, California is home to the largest women's prison in the world. And every year on Mother's Day, a special bus travels across the state, bringing kids and grandmas to see their mom in prison. We're going to hop on that bus and walk into the visiting room. Wanda Cummings, and we're going to California Central Women's Facility in Chowchilla. I got Jericho Cummings, which is my grandson, going to see his mother, Cassandra. My name is Jericho, and I'm 11. I'm going to see my mom. Just something that I feel like they need to do to keep in touch with their mom, because it's like she tell me, don't ever let her boys forget her. And I'm like, no, I cannot do that, you know. Uh, hello, my name is Pearl Gordon. I'm raising three great-grandchildren. For my granddaughter. Well, hey, we've been doing it now for 12 years. We've been visiting her. So she hasn't missed out on their growing up. It's so hard on the family. Because if you got someone in prison, you're in prison. You're in prison, too. My name is Cassandra McGraw, and I'm visiting my family at CCWF. My sons and my mother-in-law. I'm in here for robbery, and I tell them, don't do it. Don't do anything to break the law because it's not worth losing your freedom. It's not worth messing up your life. When I do ask them, you know, what, what do people say? Do your friends know? You know, their, their whole demeanor changes, and they're like, yeah, they know, and, and they're sad. It seems like our kids are the ones that's paying the price more than we are, and that's what hurts the most. Okay, my name is Jason Powell. I'm 12. I'm here visiting my mom. I've asked her many times how, what she did to get in here, and she's told me that she was with a man who had killed somebody, and she was there when it happened. My name is Kita. These are my kids and my grandma. I got a life sentence, so they ask me, when are you coming home? And I tell them, not for a long time. Let me see inside your ear. You gotta start cleaning inside your ears. I do. You do? I missed a couple days. Yeah, you. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> I want you to come with us. I can't, baby. Why? It's because I can. I gotta stay here. No, you gotta come with us. Come on. I can't. Yeah. You gotta let go, Nene. Let go. Bye, Mom. Bye, baby. I love you guys. Love you, Grandma. Thank you for the reminder and the glimpse. Anna Sussman and Julia DeWitt. It's not a whole lot harder for a mom than having to pack up her kids, move her home. It's a ton of work. Kate Moses, she moved a lot as a little girl. And when her family had to move again, this time from California to Philadelphia, her mom knew the story. She put on a happy face and began packing. I think my mom always wanted us to be a happy family, and she used herself as the example. And so even driving across country by herself with three little kids and two dogs and a pregnant cat was 
still something to try to have fun with. When I was a child, I didn't know why we moved so much. It wasn't until I was an adult that I realized that my parents were always looking for a place where they might be happy together. Our car was a 60s station wagon where you could put the back seat completely flat. So my mom covered it with an old chenille bedspread and lined it with board games and a cooler. My mom sat in the front seat by herself with a red bandana pulling her hair back. She looked at us through the rear view mirror and her eyes were sparkling and her lipstick was on and she said, this is going to be fun. That first day, we got as far as Winnemucca, Nevada, when a flash flood washed out the highway. So we stayed in the only motel and looked out the window at the rain. And my mother, she said, oh, a flash flood. Now that's something you can write on a postcard to your friends. As we crossed the Great Salt Lake Desert, a salt storm kicked up. It's like a sandstorm, but it's salt and we had to pull to the side of the road with all the other cars. There had been a livestock truck ahead of us and it overturned and all of a sudden these giant hogs came running on either side of our station wagon, squealing in panic and lifting their little pink noses. We just passed Topeka when the local radio station said there was a tornado warning. All of a sudden, all of the cars on the highway in both lanes started going east as fast as they could, whipping U-turns, careening around on the shoulder to get out of the way of this tornado. Behind us, we could see the funnel of the tornado. It was like a huge black vacuum sucking everything toward it. At first, I was excited. I thought, yay, it's Wizard of Oz, Mom. But then I saw my mother's face, and she was pale. She was focused on driving as fast as she could. She asked my older brother to keep an eye on the tornado out of the back of the car. How does it look now, Billy? It's bigger, Mommy. It looks like it's getting closer. And then she would step on the gas even harder. 90 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour, 110 miles an hour. And there were cars passing us on the shoulders everyone racing as fast as they could to get away from the tornado. And finally, we rattled into Lawrence, Kansas. The car was blowing smoke. My mom outraced the tornado. And we stayed in a little motel, and my brothers and I splashed in the pool while our mom lay on a lounge chair with a damp face cloth over her face. On the last day of the trip, I was just prying the lid off the top of my strawberry milkshake. And just as I was taking it off, it just kind of exploded. And I watched this pink tsunami of strawberry milkshake go flying toward the back of my mom's head. And then I saw her eyes in the rear view mirror as this cold milkshake went down her dirty shirt, dripped down her back, and she lost it. I hate this family. I Nothing ever changes. I wish I could run away. She just couldn't pretend it was all fun anymore. And her hands were shaking on the steering wheel. She was so angry and so frustrated and so exhausted. But she couldn't go anywhere. There was nowhere for her to run away to. Once you're a mother, you can't get away. That's what you do. It's your job to put on the happy face. When we finally arrived at our new house, I saw my mom find her endless hope once again. My brothers and I shambled out of the car, her arms swung wide to hold her sweet, bumbling kids. That's all she really wanted. She wanted to show us what it felt like to be home.
Kate Moses eventually made it out to the San Francisco Bay Area where there are no tornadoes, only earthquakes. She's written a book about her childhood called Cakewalk, a memoir. Find the link on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman and Stephanie Fu. It's about that time. You've listened to the Dear Mama episode of Snap Judgment, and you've almost listened it all up. But be good. Don't fret or frown. All is well. The world of Snap Judgment awaits. Episodes, movies, pictures. Share your story with us at snapjudgment.org. Facebook, Snap Judgment. Twitter, Snap Judgment ORG. iTunes, type in the name. Put some snap in your pocket. Snap was produced by myself and a bunch of bad little boys and girls who flew out of the window after a sprinkling of pixie dust. Say hello to Captain Hook himself, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Anna Tinkerbell Sussman, Stephanie Tiger Lily Foo, the crocodile, Jamie DeWolf, the one with the top hat, Pat Masidi Miller, the other one, Renzo Gorio, Julia DeWitt, also known as Wendy, Lindsay Lee Keel, The Long Gun, and starring Will Urbina as Smee. Now, you know a kid who could never come out and play because his mama said he might catch a chill? Don't blame him, Snappers. That's just a corporation for public broadcasting. He's a victim of his environment. Just open up the back window and see if you kids can't get into some devilment. Many thanks to the CPB. Youth Speaks because the next generation can speak for itself. YouthSpeaks.org And you know the bad kid who has to pay for a school lunch with dirty $100 bills? Well, that has nothing to do with PRX, the public radio exchange, putting the public and public media right where the public belongs. PRX.org You know this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could sneak Marsha and Jan and Peter and Bobby and Greg and Cindy into your mother's house for her birthday in order to give her the family she always wanted. And you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.